it's 100 years since the death of Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. She was the first female surgeon in Britain, also the first female BMA member, first female doctor in France, and the first female mayor and magistrate, so somewhat accomplished. Things have changed a lot since her time, but even as recently as 1991, only 3% of consultant surgeons in England were female, and even now it's only around 11%. New research published on bmj.com has evaluated how well women surgeons operate when compared to their male colleagues, and it shows that they actually confer a marginal improvement in patient outcomes. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and earlier this week I talked to two of the authors of that paper, Chris Wallace, a resident at the University of Toronto, and Raj Satkanasavam, a urologic surgeon and assistant professor at Houston Methodist Hospital in Texas. Hi Raj, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. And Chris, hello to you. Thanks again for having us. Um, so, I mean, the first question I, I wanted to ask was, um, why did you want to do this research? Um, you know, what were you actually setting out to, to discover here? Um, Raj here. Um, you know, the reason we wanted to do this study is that uh, we know in the literature that men and women actually practice medicine uh, differently. Uh, certainly, when you look at the literature, particularly in the specialty of internal medicine, uh, people have studied uh, that the differences in uh, in ways that men and women practice medicine might lead to differences in patient outcome. Um, as as we all know, surgery is a very different uh, uh, discipline in medicine, and it's fundamentally driven by a very, uh, uh, at its core, very uh, technical component. And so this needs to be really addressed. Um, this question needs to be addressed uh, in surgery as well. The, the second aspect to why this is an important question to study is that surgery, uh, as we all know, has uh, traditionally been a male-dominated specialty. Uh, there is a real ongoing movement for gender equality uh, in this field. Um, and a study such as this uh, would really provide uh, real-world data and help uh, dispel some of the, the biases and myths that exist uh, that might help perpetuate some of the uh, inequalities uh, uh, that are seen. Mm. I mean, I, I wanted to pick up on that because, I mean, this isn't the first study of this kind that's been published. You know, we've seen studies about... Um, foreign medical school graduates who are now working in the U.S. And, and looking at them. And I just wondered, you know, how prevalent do you think those those biases are within within surgery still? Um, Raj here again. Well, we know that um, the perception, I think, uh, that, that, that may exist amongst our female colleagues that perhaps that their work is not judged in the same manner and in the same way. And we've seen, um, you know, academics really highlight uh, some of these differences, uh, especially some of the leaders that have highlighted differences in pay scale, differences in um, salary, differences in the positions that are occupied uh, in leadership roles uh, throughout North America by female surgeons, uh, even though that there's uh, plenty of qualified ones uh, that are out there. Hmm. So, Duncan, just to, just to add, it's Chris here. I think the, the 
most concrete way of identifying that there are barriers to women in surgery is to look at um, the progression of women through the surgical hierarchy. And so you could argue, for example, that maybe women are less interested in surgery and that's why fewer become surgeons. And I, I would debate that and I don't think it's necessarily valid. But even if you accept that, there should be a progression of women within surgery and through the hierarchies and um, both in academic um, uh, leadership roles within their, their universities and their institutions and within the greater bodies. And we know that women in surgery are much less likely to be represented at the upper echelons of the, the mm -hmm. hierarchy. And so this suggests a systemic um, barrier to, to their progression. And that's, you know, I think an important reason that we need to address this, this question and, and in a timely way. Sure. I mean, and I mean, the way you've done that is to, to look at, at outcomes um, from female surgeons to see how they might differ from, from the average. But I was just wondering within that, you know, surgery isn't just one surgeon doing an operation and then that's the end of it. You know, it's a team, there's an anesthetist in there, there are um, potentially multiple surgeons, there's then the sort of uh, post-operative team um, in intensive care or, or wherever looking after a, a patient after surgery. So, you know, given the team effort there, um, how did you think looking at, at the individual would help sort of uh, elucidate, um, you know, some of the things that you've talked about? Yeah, it's Chris, I can take that one first. And sure. Raj can maybe add if he has further thoughts. Yeah. But, you know, I think, I think, you know, the old mentality of the surgeon being the monolithic leader is, is a bit outdated, but there's still validity to the idea that the surgeon is potentially the leader of the team that cares for every patient. And so um, focusing on that person who, in our system, we would call the, the most responsible physician has value. The other thing to, to consider is that other team players may dilute this effect, right? So we would think that if if there's a difference between male and female surgeons, but everyone gets the same post-operative care, that that should diminish differences, not magnify differences. So if anything, mm -hmm. we have a bias to the null here. And so, so it may, I mean, you could, you know, potentially contentiously argue that the fact that it's a team sport may be, diminishes the effect of our result and that the true difference between male and female surgeons is larger than we are able to quantify. Um, I don't think that that's pure speculation, um, but I certainly think that there's still validity in looking at the, the surgeon most responsible for a patient's care because fundamentally when a, when a patient approaches a surgeon and is signing consent for an operation, they are involving the whole team but they're still listing a single operating surgeon as the most responsible and the one who's in charge of getting consent. And so, mm. so having someone who is identified as the leader of the team and most responsible, um, I think warrants a reasonable examination of that person as, uh, as the exposure. So what you're looking at here isn't just then the technical ability of, of, of the surgeon in question. It's also, you know, within that is their ability to, to lead and coordinate a team and, and to do those kind of, um, I don't know, I suppose softer skills um, as well. Yeah, um, so Raj here. Um, so, you know, just, 
just getting back to that point that we know that men and women may practice medicine differently, right? And the underpinning causes of these differences, I think, is multifactorial. And, you know, we can see that there may be a biological for uh, biological reason for such differences, for sure. Um, but we weren't concerned with, you know, identifying the particular reason per se uh, for these differences, but rather wanted to understand whether the approach to surgical practice taken by women and men may lead to differences in outcomes. And so it follows that, you know, surgeon sex may be purely a surrogate for traits that are related to practice patterns, skill sets, and not necessarily, uh, um, you know, biologic differences. Um, and, and to further uh, add to, you know, your question, you know, we know that good outcomes, good post-operative outcomes, they, 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 they're multifactorial. They depend on the hospital in which a surgeon works. It depends on the team that surrounds them from nurses to consultants to surgical trainees that are part of an academic uh, team, for example. But, you know, the importance is the methodology here. Our, our matching process effectively compared surgeons working at the same hospital so, you know, we were comparing both male and female surgeons that had access to the same teams and, and same resources. So the difference in outcomes that we actually observed were less likely to, do to be due to system uh, issues or team-based factors. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, of course, we have to appreciate that it may be related to how female surgeons are utilizing these resources or how they interact uh, with the team around them at, or at their disposals. You know, for example, you know, how they consult other surgical or non-surgical colleagues or how they utilize the intensive care unit in, in that very same hospital. Mm. So given all those caveats um, and explanation there, um, you, you, you've sort of started to explain a little bit about your methodology and, and your data, but could you, you give us a little bit more of an overview of, of how you actually went about studying this? Uh, sure. Um, so, you know, we, we looked at uh, a large cohort of patients in Ontario, um, and they uh, and, and we picked uh, patients that underwent, underwent one of uh, 25 uh, surgical um, procedures. So these were a broad range of, uh, of procedures, and we selected these from every single surgical discipline, from, you know, orthopedic surgery to cardiac to, to general surgery. And you know, we were interested in outcomes that uh, were um, uh, previously validated uh, outcomes of uh, such as complications, including heart attacks. Uh, we were uh, interested in, you know, hard outcomes like death uh, and, and being readmitted to the hospital, all occurring really within a month uh, after surgery. Um, and so, you know, the, it's, it's, the issue is that simply flawed to compare outcomes of patients treated by male versus female surgeons since, you know, the characteristics of these patients actually may vary. So mm -hmm. we felt it was best to perform uh, a matched analysis. Um, so, you know, we matched patients that were operated on by female surgeons that were uh, to, to surgeon, uh, to patients that were operated on by male surgeons using a variety of factors. And we obviously consider patient factors that are important for surgical outcomes, such as, you know, the age of the patient, um, the sex of the patient and the comorbidity. Um, mm. You know, the procedure itself is obviously very important. Um, and surgeon factors, you know, how busy a surgeon is, is a critical determinant of postoperative outcomes. So we actually matched based on, uh, um, on 
how busy the surgeon was based on how active they were that previous year, the age of the surgeon, which is an important determinant, and obviously the hospital, um, you know, because there's great variation in in outcomes from one hospital to uh, uh, to a, to another, and and so that's fundamentally the the methodology that we used. So as far as possible, you've you've tried to account for case mix and and setting. Um, so uh, what was it that, that you found, um, Chris? So when we looked at the, this group, we looked at uh, what we call a composite outcome or a combination of factors that we looked at as our main outcome. So this included death within 30 days, readmission to the hospital, uh, reoperations or major medical complications, including a heart attack or a stroke or a large blood clot. And so when we looked at this fact, the, this outcome, there was small differences between men and women uh, or patients treated by male and female surgeons. And what we saw was that there's about a 4% lower uh, rate of these events among patients who had had a female surgeon. And this reached uh, statistical significance. We also looked at each of these outcomes separately. And what we found was that uh, only mortality, 30-day mortality was different between the patients who had male and female surgeons, and the other uh, outcomes, including complications, readmissions, um, did not significantly differ um, by statistical criteria. Okay. Um, so it, it seems that, like, you know, the, the, uh, the biases that we'd heard you talk about at the beginning were unfounded. Um, one question I had when looking at this was, about the age of of the surgeons involved so women in surgery you know the, there's almost a bump going through the system at the moment as as women are more accepted um as women decided to, to choose that as a career surgery was a, a very male dominated thing so you know that could potentially skew your populations to older and younger and younger being you know more recently qualified and things um, might make a difference to to outcomes. So, um, you know, were you able to, to look at that or, or maybe um, adjust for that as well? Yeah, so it's Chris here. I can address that quickly. So first is in our main analysis, it was a matched analysis, which means that the surgeons, male and female, uh, in the matched pairs had to have basically the same age. Now, what this right. means, obviously, is that older male surgeons may not be able to be matched to uh, an equivalent female surgeon because there may not be um, an older female surgeon. And so as sort of a sensitivity analysis to see how that um, inability to match affects our results, we also performed uh, a regression-based analysis as opposed to a matching analysis where we just adjusted for every factor instead of matching based on it. And so when we did it this way, which we're uh, included the whole cohort, close to 1.2 million patients. Um, we found almost identically uh, comparable results. The the difference, instead of being four uh, percent, was now um, you know uh, like five percent. Sure. Um, given that sex isn't a modifiable factor um, within within the population. I mean, where do you think you go from here? Um, I suppose the other element to this is, you know, variation within a population, within, between women, between men, 
is often greater than the average variation between two populations. Um, so, I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is, you know, what are the factors that you think actually we need to now go in and examine um, to see if they're making a difference to, to outcomes? Yeah, it's Chris here. I can I can take that one, Duncan. So I mean, I guess your question to me really is the so what of this of of this study, and and so what because we can't change the sex of surgeons, um, and certainly um, we're not advocating that patients simply stop seeing male surgeons. But the question is, <laughs> what leads to these differences in care? What what is it about how women maybe practice medicine as compared to how men practice medicine that leads to these differences? And so, for example, future qualitative work is, is needed to look at the processes of care and how these differ. And, you know, whether it's uh, collaboration, whether it's the way that consulting services are used, whether it's some degree of preoperative risk assessment or, or future work is really needed to understand those differences. And and our goal would be that uh, an understanding of those differences can lead um, to education of all surgeons such that patients who are treated by any surgeon, regardless of gender, can have improved care in the future. And that's, that's what we're working towards. Um, you know, these, identifying these differences uh, in the way that uh, women may potentially be practicing surgery, uh, it really speaks to the idea that, you know, this in increasing diversity in this field really brings about uh, um, new characteristics and new ways that we can potentially uh, improve outcomes for everyone. And, and uh, you know, um, you know, if you look at the editorial to to our study, uh, really uh, addresses the fact that you know um, outcomes are multifactorial and. Uh, uh, you know, we don't need to focus just on gender, but maybe gender is just a surrogate or, or rather sex is just a surrogate for other mm -hmm. characteristics that we really need to better, uh, better understand. And uh, I would echo the, the point that we would not, you know, uh, suggest at all that patients should uh, in any way um, uh, select their surgeon based on their, their sex. So the research shows that, at the very least, Women are as good as men when it comes to surgical outcomes, and possibly better. And that might be down to factors such as teamwork and collaboration. To put this all in context, I also spoke to Claire Marks, Associate Medical Director of Ipswich Hospital NHS Trust and former President of the Royal College of Surgeons. Claire's one of the authors of the accompanying editorial to that research and has thought long and hard about women and surgery. Well, it's fascinating that this week uh, we mark 100 years uh, since the death of uh, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who was the first woman to qualify uh, in the UK. It's interesting that she was not able to um, take the examinations at the Royal College of Surgeons because at that time they wouldn't let women do that. And in fact, it wasn't until uh, around about 45 years after she first applied that they let women uh, into the college. So in the last 100 years, I guess we've actually come a long way in terms of understanding that the uh, gender of the individual delivering healthcare is probably irrelevant 
other than at a a person choice level. And I think that's entirely uh, an option for every individual Mm -hmm. as to whether they want to be treated by a man or a woman. But uh, in terms of research in the last years, we've seen various observational studies. And of course, we know the problems of observational studies, that they don't actually tell us the reasons why individuals uh, would seem to be better than other individuals. But we know from these observational studies that it's been suggested that uh, patients treated by women physicians have a lower risk of death. These are some studies from America looking at elderly patients. And we also know there are all sorts of other observational studies that suggest other things such as which country you qualified in may make a difference when it comes to how a patient uh, comes out of a particular individual episode of care. And for me, I think this is a bit of a distraction because what we should really be looking at now is what is it that people, uh, the clinicians and their teams do that is really important when it comes to the outcome for the patient. Mm. And that's a much more complex uh, conversation. Which is why it's always easier to to try and measure one thing. But um, I I think you you talked there about the research on foreign medical graduates and and outcomes there. Uh, This one's on women. Now, I'm not second-guessing the motivations of, of these authors at all, but I'm just wondering, does this, the fact that we're even asking questions like this, wondering about these things, does that reflect, uh, I don't know, a structural discrimination or, or something within, within surgery, within medicine generally? Well, uh, surgery, we know, has been prone to unconscious bias. And actually, I think probably the whole of medicine has been prone to unconscious bias in both the area of diversity, uh, in terms of uh, sex, in terms of uh, religion, probably in terms of of, uh, the origin of the individuals, and probably all the other uh, characteristics Mm -hmm. that that we commonly look at. And that unconscious bias is something that we are increasingly trying to make people aware of. And we've been very bad of it uh, up till now. It's in surgery. And uh, I have to say, when I came through as a consultant, I was one of 1% of women orthopedic surgeons. And uh, not unnaturally, it was unusual for people to think of orthopaedic surgeons to be anything other than a man. Mm -hmm. So I I think there is an underlying issue of unconscious bias, which we've not been terribly good at coping with. And uh, getting just getting people to recognise that they need to think much more broadly about what it is they're trying to say when they do these pieces of research. And uh, I think it's just... uh, important that people should understand their own unconscious biases and and uh, and and that will probably be as good a way as any as trying to overcome some of these factors yes yeah um i mean you hinted at this there uh surgery has changed immensely and 
you know, no, it really is a team effort, um, a team of, of people actually carrying out the surgery, a team of people um, looking after people in intensive care after surgery. Um, yeah, we still seem to be very attracted um, by trying to, to publish, you know, individual surgeon outcomes. And, you know, we, we do this in the NHS, we publish individual surgeon outcomes. Um, where do you stand on that kind of individual versus group responsibility for these? This is quite a, a tricky area because at the end of the day, the patients tend to want to make a bond with a surgeon and therefore feel that that person is individually responsible. But as you've just outlined, uh, there is so much more to a good outcome than the operating surgeon. It helps to have a technically good operating surgeon, but it's certainly not the only factor. And what we have always said is that we are prepared to go along with the publication of individual surgeons' outcomes as long as uh, they are also linked to a narrative around the environment in which that individual is working and the sort of facilities that they have. So you can be the best cardiac surgeon in the world, but if you are in a, an environment which has poor pump technicians or poor intensive care, then the, the, it's not going to be the fact that your technical job failed, but the patient may not do well. So we've been quite anxious about some of the publication of individual outcomes, not least because it does seem that there's a tendency to pick up the headline killer surgeon uh, rather than, you know, we have looked at surgery overall and guess what? The outcomes for people undergoing cardiac surgery have improved enormously over the last 10 years such that it's actually really quite a effective and safe environment. Perhaps the outcomes from our hospitals in general are better than the European average. So no, we don't talk about that, uh, but we should be in the same narrative as we're talking about a particular surgeon's outcome. For us, I think as we go uh, through these outcome measurements, what we really want to be doing is seeing a much broader a group of, of data being presented at the same time. So it's not just simply a single surgeon's outcome. Mm. But then at the same time, it is important to make sure that any individual surgeon has got as good a technique as it's, it's possible to have. But we know that there are other ways of doing that. And uh, I was very interested in a, a paper from JAMA, which actually showed that uh, skilled peer review of a surgeon was perfectly capable of picking out a surgeon's actual operative competencies. And that particular paper showed that uh, the rating of the surgeon's skills was, at a later date, actually directly re um, relatable to the outcomes for the patients in terms of their uh, length of stay, in terms of their mortality, in terms of their complications. So. I think that uh, we have taken a little bit of a sledgehammer to crack this particular nut. If we really want to see improvement 
in outcomes for patients in terms of surgeon skills. What we should be doing is getting peer review and then we should be actually getting individual trainers. I mean, who would, who, no tennis player would go to a tennis match at a professional level without having a coach. Yes. And yet, once you become a consultant, actually it's incredibly rare for anyone to receive any form of coach, assessment and coaching. No football team would uh, go to the next match if they hadn't watched the action replay from the last match and understood from their coach where they could have done it better. And so there are some quite time-consuming but worthwhile activities that we could bring in into medicine that actually would be supportive to the surgeon and probably beneficial to the units and to the patients yes, overall. Absolutely. And we're just not even talking in that field in most of these uh, studies. Um, I mean, we started this conversation by talking about uh, women in surgery 100 years ago and, and where we've come now. And I mean, a, a thing that people were saying about women in surgery was that you can never be dedicated enough because, you know, you want to be a mother and have children and take time out and, and do that, those kind of things. Um, now, it seems that, you know, wanting some flexibility in your life, wanting a portfolio career, wanting to, to I don't know, work four days a week instead of um, five, whatever it happens to be, is something that um, the workforce of, of today, tomorrow certainly, is looking for. Um, do you think the way we do surgery in the UK, the way the service is set up, the way the training is set up, um, is able to cater to those changing expectations? I think this applies to men and women. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, there is uh, quite understandably a different view as to what is available in the world outside of work. Uh, and we have to be smart enough to make that happen. Having said that, the, the delivery of a surgical service is a, something that has to happen 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And individuals going into any form of medical career have to factor in the, the element of service, which means that there will have to be a degree of selflessness in what they do. I'm not saying that it has to be entirely that, but there is a degree of selflessness. Uh, and we certainly need to try and improve what we do at the moment because we've been very careless with people's time and energy uh, as a as a service overall we've paid too little regard to these individual needs to making it possible to providing creches on saturdays and sundays uh, so that individuals can come to all these elements that make it possible to do the job and one of the ways in which we've been particularly, uh, I think, uh, neglectful is that we haven't involved the workforce enough in trying to work out their own ways of doing this. These are very intelligent people who um, are problem solvers by nature. And if you give them the problem and uh, ask them to come up with a solution, they will usually manage to do that. So 
we can undoubtedly use their skills to try and help us with trying to deliver that service. But undoubt, undoubtedly, we have got to change uh, what we demand of people in this system for the future. Because if we want to retain the uh, women who come in and qualify in medicine, and that's over 50%, we will have to understand that they will need to have the ability to make the choice as to whether they take time out for families or whether they want to share that with their partners or how they want to do that. Um, and if they need to come, if they don't want to have time out and they want to come back to work, we've got to make that possible too. Mm. And we just don't really think about that at the moment. No. This idea of, of what a surgeon is, I think um, you obviously, you know, you kind of embody this, like you ended up as the, the president of the Royal College. Um, but, you know, MTAS came along and suddenly, you know, it almost broke that that contract between the individuals and the profession. And now, the you know, the way that uh, training works, there's not a firm in the same way. And, you know, these, these things really change the way that someone sort of identifies themselves. And, you know, if being a surgeon involves a lot of that selflessness um, in terms of one's time and, and energy, you know, it feels like the balance there might have changed and, and that will change people's expectations coming in. And, and I think this is where I come back to that business of coaching because what effectively the old system did was it acted as an environment in which you could have individual coaching. The registrar coached the SHO, mm -hmm. the senior registrar coached the registrar, the consultant coached the senior registrar. And that bond, that intimacy, uh, a relationship in which someone you respected uh, assessed what you were doing and from whom you took feedback and who understood your pressures, that relationship has been broken by the system you've just described. And I think that refocusing on that and actually uh, making it part of one's duty to enable the next generation in a much more explicit way uh, could be part of the solution of what's happening at the moment. I think it's fair to say that across the patch that does happen and it there are many people who are giving a huge amount of time to make that happen but it's probably not happening enough and the the lack of the feeling of belonging is what uh, is one of the things that i think a lot of uh, young doctors feel very strongly about particularly in their early years when you when you look at the more senior doctors most of them feel they belong because they've uh, they've made a choice They've become a neurosurgeon. They've become a gastroenterologist. But in those very early years, uh, you see people on the wards. And when you say, hello, who are you? And they say, I'm the foundation doctor. Well, they don't even bother to give you the name anymore. You know, it's not, I'm Claire Marks. I'm the, you know, I'm the foundation doctor. It's just, I'm the foundation doctor. And somehow we've made it almost totally impersonal at that lower level. So I, I had this thought uh, a year or so ago that 
we could borrow a good idea. That lovely idea of saying to patients, hello, my name is, mm. which we all know about. Maybe we should actually try that on our professional colleagues and make an effort to go on to a ward and say, hello, my name is, and, you know, and how can I help you, rather than just uh, ignoring the people that we're working with. And uh, to, to relate back to the paper, get away from those idea of the Woman Foundation doctor or the... Uh, indeed. Whoever else. Yes, yeah. indeed. You've been listening to Chris Wallace, Raj Satkanasavam and Claire Marks talk about women in surgery. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with more. In the meantime, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. There you'll also find our fullback catalogue. It's hundreds of interviews, all available for free, so go download some today. We'll be back next week talking about incentivising patient-centred care and finding out how much getting older people to exercise could save our social care system. Thanks for listening.